Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read the best business books. Read with us so you can become a better investor, manager, or entrepreneur. This month, we read Let It Go, The Memoirs of Dame Stephanie Shirley by Stephanie Shirley and Richard Ashwith. Stephanie Shirley is one of Britain's leading philanthropists, and she's donated most of her life to helping good causes, especially those close to her heart. Before that, though, she was an entrepreneur, and in this fascinating memoir, she charts her rise from a child in Germany escaping Nazism and arriving in England as a refugee unaccompanied on a kinder transport through to her retirement and dedication to her charity work. It's an amazing read, which will take you through the entire range of emotions from happiness at the success of her original company, Freelance Programmers, through to the ultimate sadness of losing her only child. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. Hi, I'm Eli Mitchell, and I'm a management consultant. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So, Stephanie Shirley, she's really well known in the UK, but our international listeners might not know her as well. Who is Stephanie Shirley? So, Dame Stephanie Shirley was born Vera Buchtal, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, in Dortmund, Germany in 1933. She was the daughter of a young Jewish judge who spoke seven languages, and his Austrian wife, who actually wasn't Jewish. As Nazism took over, they moved to seven different countries, including Italy and Hungary, before settling outside of Vienna and Austria. Uh, ultimately, as uh, Kopeck had mentioned earlier, uh, Kinder Transport rescued her and her sister and took them to the UK, where they lived with the Foster family starting in 1939. So she was five years old, her sister was nine, and they went, traveled alone on a train full of a, about a thousand children and two adults to escape uh, the Holocaust. Her family was incredibly lucky and actually largely survived the Holocaust with her mother making it to England a few years later. At 18, she was naturalized as an English citizen and changed her name legally to Stephanie Brooke. She decided to forgo college to provide for her family and started working at the post office research station at Dallas Hill, where the Colossus One, the first programmable computer, was built for Bletchley Park to help decipher the Enigma code. She took the job because it would allow her to finish school and ultimately go back to college at night while working. The job was initially mundane calculations, but she was eventually working on computer hardware projects. She left and worked at CDL Limited in 1959, which would, had designed the ICT-1301 computer. And in 1962, she married Derek Shirley, a former coworker of hers at Dallas Hill. And in that same year, she founded Freelance Programmers to write software from home, ultimately expanding that to, to many other women being able to work primarily from their home uh, when they had dependents that were relying on them in a very flexible arrangement. So ultimately, that company became a publicly traded firm. Uh, it went through you know a variety of name changes. Uh, ultimately, as Zansa, it sold to a French company, Group Steria SCA, for 470 million pounds in 2007. And in addition to her corporate success, as you mentioned, she was a, a very devoted philanthropist, is a very devoted philanthropist who hopes to give away her fortune prior to dying. So much of her focus has been on autism. Her son, Giles, suffered from debilitating autism, which she goes into great depth with in the book. And through that, she first created some foundations to focus on his care, then a few others care, ultimately founding a school focused on uh, helping autistic children to be able to become independent adults. And she was actually the UK's first ambassador for philanthropy. So she serves on many boards and educational efforts related to both autism and technology. So I think if there was ever anybody that we've read in this club that we could say was ahead of their time, she has to be up there. What was special about freelance programmers when it got started? Yeah, so freelance programmers, I mean, she started it at her kitchen table with the equivalent of like $100 in uh, today's terms. And she started it as with the objective of employing women. I think she had faced uh, sexism at the post office um, and had actually had to step back from the job when she married her husband because they both worked at uh, the post office. And the assumption was that two married uh, individuals cannot work at the same employer. And therefore, the man should be the one that keeps his job there. And she was just looking around saying she has all of these skills and couldn't get hired. So she created her own company. And really with the purpose of hiring women and looking around, seeing that there were many, many women who were educated as computer programmers who 
because of childcare reasons or just sexism reasons and getting hired, couldn't get hired elsewhere. And then also was uh, very open with remote working, which I think given COVID, we can have a conversation about what they've learned about remote working and how they were able to implement that in the 1950s, 1960s. But I think it was just interesting that she recognized that there were all of these skills and it was really an untapped resource from all of the females who are educated as computer programmers, but not able to find jobs elsewhere. And I'd just like to provide some context about the programming side. So we're talking in the 50s and 60s. A lot of people might not be aware that many of the most successful and skilled early programmers were actually women because we live in a time when unfortunately that's not the case. And there's a terrible male skew in computer science and in programming more generally, where it's generally 70 to 80% male. But actually, in the early days of computing, a lot of the programmers were women. And some of the most famous early programmers, including going all the way back to the 19th century and uh, Charles Babbage, Ada Lovelace was by some people considered the first programmer. And Grace Hopper is a very famous programmer who we have who worked in the 50s and 60s for the Navy. And actually, the Women's Conference on Programming is named after. So there were a lot of really successful and skilled women programmers. And they were unfortunately being pushed out of the workplace due to sexism. Yeah, it was really incredible to hear about her because honestly, I never had. So I guess that's a question I have I have for you all. After hearing about her and reading the book, I like did a little bit of research and it seems like she probably is quite famous in England. But as an American, I just did not know about this woman who'd led this just such an incredible life of not just her corporate success, but her philanthropy and also literally being a refugee that she had, you know, to depend on, you know, the state and the the care of, you know, complete strangers at like such a vulnerable, you know, moment in her life and to 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 overcome all of that to have such incredible success. It was it was really just honestly one of the the best books I think we've read as just a like a, a narrative. Her life is just so uh, incredibly, you know, powerful and moving. Yeah, I will admit I also had never heard of her. And in the same Googling after reading it, have seen she is probably quite well known in England. I'll be curious. I think that a few of my business school friends who are based in England do listen to this podcast. Um, So I would be curious if any of them uh, berate me for having never heard of her Um, as a strong female entrepreneur who is very ahead of her time. And really just, I mean, set the stage for so many females, right? She was employed, she was focused on employing females. And what we'll get into with this is she made them rich, right? She made many people at her company, uh, millionaires later on in life. So I'm, you know, embarrassed, I guess, for not knowing of her before reading this. So let's get a little bit into freelance programmers. So you mentioned how freelance programmers came out of her kind of negative experiences with sexism. How did she go about getting these female programmers together to form a loose confederation working together on a freelance basis? So they really corresponded by mail and on the telephone primarily. So it's really like just such an incredible story given you know, I guess probably all of us are now working remotely, but at the time in the sixties, this was just like an incredibly innovative idea. And they actually did even end up getting news coverage and things like that as well. Cause it was, you know, these, these women programmers that are working between, you know, changing nappies for their babies. It was like something that was like, even at the time seen as this like really incredible story, but she also hit it in a lot of ways too. And so she talks a lot about the, the steps that she took to seem like a more traditional corporate office. And so she actually had a secretary come in one day a week so that all her correspondence went out in very you know formal way. She would go by Steve for a while at the beginning. And I think actually she even continued to. And it had been a family nickname, but you know, on paper, then Steve Shirley was trying to sell you software, not Stephanie. And she was able to, you know, sell more uh, software that way, you know, pretending to be a man, at least at the beginning until, you know, she would ultimately be in person to close a deal and they would find out who she was. But, you know, she, she just wasn't getting any responses when she was just going out as Stephanie. Some of the other things that I think she implemented that led to what she says is that her workforce was 40% more productive than at other companies. And this, I think, was due to really treating her employees as adults. It seems that at the time, every hour of a programmer's life, their manager was 
you know, on top of them and asking what are you doing and keep and keeping track of all of their productivity. And they were being treated like children. And when you're working remotely in the 1950s and 1960s and even now, it is not possible to keep track of what everyone is doing on an hourly basis. So she really focused more on productivity um, of her employees. And she said just by treating them as adults led them to act like adults, which was uh, seemed to be quite novel at the time. It also seems like there really just wasn't a hierarchy at the company, uh, which, of course, I think we listen uh, and read many books where entrepreneurs would say that there's no hierarchy for the better or for the worse. I think that there were some times when they faced challenges and the fact that they didn't have a real org structure. And it was really just her managing a database of programmers that were available to her. And that became challenging. But then they also had other things like, so they paid for training uh, for their employees and allowed them to take the time. And I shouldn't even call them employees, right? Because they were all freelancers, which is another thing that I think the company benefited from the fact that they did not pay their freelancers until a project was done, until they were paid by their clients. And that's just something that for cash flows at the beginning, there they did have issues with cash flows because that wasn't the case. Um, But it set the company up to be really strong just because of these changes that they put in place that were really novel at the time. Right. This was really the gig economy before the gig economy. This was an early experiment in just people being hired on the fly as needed instead of being full-time employees. And it really enabled some of these women to be employed who otherwise at that time, unfortunately, due to sexism in some cases, were seen as unemployable because they had children or because they couldn't work during a normal nine to five business day. And so I think that's one of the great innovations here is just the idea of people working on a more flexible basis instead of working as full-time employees. The other thing that I found really interesting was that she insisted on projects being developed at a fixed cost, which was different than a lot of other consultants, she says, who would only want to work on an hourly basis. What did you think about that, about her insisting on fixed cost projects? Because it also got her into trouble a couple of times. Yeah, I I thought it was really interesting because just as a product manager, I know how difficult it can be to reliably estimate how much effort it's going to take to complete a software project. And so giving a fixed cost estimate means that you're locked in at that point. And it may be very helpful in winning projects, but they did have very low margins for a very long time. So, you know, it was a successful business model. She ultimately created it at a, at some point, I think it was worth nearly 3 billion pounds company, but they did have, you know, some ups and downs with that process as well. Cause sometimes, you know, projects did spin out of control. They did have projects where they lost significant amounts of money because the freelancers would be getting paid based off of the output of their work. But I guess I actually don't remember how they how they ended up losing money in that situation. Probably they had to throw more people at the project because it was just the the individual person wasn't wasn't succeeding. And so I think one of the examples she gave actually was was early on. She had a freelancer that she'd hired and that they, you know, just didn't deliver on the project. And so she herself had to learn a new programming language in order to complete the project on time. And so, you know, this was one of the places where the the company could have fallen down in the, in the first few years, but that, you know, she just worked herself to the bone in order to to make it succeed. That's another thing that definitely did really come through across the book is just how hardworking Steve Shirley is. I think that she, to this day, is probably working like crazy hours as a philanthropist. That's just like how she's meant to run. She just like wants to be focused on, you know, productive activities and, and, and getting things done. And so even, you know, after retiring, you know, decades ago, she's still, you know, hard at work, both deploying her own money, which she's, you know, happy to to let go. Uh, and also, you know, recruiting others. So, you know, becoming a, a fundraiser in addition to just a philanthropist. Yeah, I, I think in terms of the fixed cost, that did seem to be something that's quite novel. It's interesting for me working in the consultancy service industry. Uh, all of our projects are sold at fixed costs. Of course, it is management consulting and not software development. So it's probably easier to adjust the project uh, or to predict what the costs are. Um, And you don't, I know both of you uh, probably understand better the challenges that you can come across in actual programming. And that story, short, I was thinking of the same story as well. And she just like kind of overnight had to learn a new programming language. And then over a weekend or a week or something, completely recode an entire project is just representative of how they had to get themselves out of that. 
I'm curious though, did y'all catch like any other innovations that freelance programmers did on the uh, business development side? Like, because it, se- it seems like fixed cost was something that was just attractive to their client base, right? Like they, you know, that was revolutionary for their clients to be able to know that they could just pay for something and it would be delivered. Was there anything else that you saw that seemed revolutionary as to why they were successful with their clients rather than just on the hiring the female remote employees? So I don't know if this is true because I don't know enough about the details of it, but she basically claims that they invented quality control in programming, which I'm sure I didn't, I, she didn't explicitly say that, but it sounded like the processes that they developed for how projects should be run and go through review processes before then, you know, being delivered to the client to avoid bugs and things like that is something that's like incredibly common now. And she says that, you know, NATO adopted like their processes for, for, you know, software project execution and stuff like that. So it seems like they actually were like pretty big on figuring out the processes to reliably develop software so that you could do things that are like, you know, relate to planes and like military technology and things like that, where like you really need to have like zero defect output in in a lot of ways. And so that part is, if true, like incredibly important part of, you know, I mean, software software development works a little bit differently now, but still like the quality control step is is, is a big part of, you know, everything that we're doing. So as my developers put out code, we, you know, have a, a development environment where we can test that code, see how it works both, you know, systematically with, with programming and also with manual testing, literally going in and, you know, clicking around buttons and making sure things aren't broken. So the the idea that she was, you know, early on in, in those kinds of thinkings is, is, is also really important. I, I, I don't know, Kopak, you probably know more, more than I do. Did that make sense to you? Did, you? did you read it the same way that I did about them being so important in the development there? Yeah. So I think we have to remember how early this is. She founds the company in 1962. The first commercial computers only came out in the late 1940s, early 1950s. So the discipline of software engineering was still not very well defined. And it was still kind of just a mess with different people following completely different practices. So I would not be surprised if it was pretty innovative what she was doing in terms of quality control. But I'll also just mention the company in general was a lot of these things she was first on, whether she was the first or second or fourth software consultancy in the UK, she was certainly one of the first. And so I think there is a bit of being having the right idea at the right time as well that goes into all this. But I don't want to take away anything from the fact that she was so innovative in so many other ways. But I think that, you know, it was very there was a lot of foresight and even just starting a software consultancy at this time. And she was certainly must have been one of the first in the UK. Yeah, she talks about that a little bit, that it was literally like laughed at when she told her former coworkers she was going to sell software because everyone sold hardware and then the software just came along with it. And, you know, maybe you had full-time, you know, engineers developing additional software for the hardware, but you, no one bought software from from anyone, let alone like hired people to, you know, develop the software for them, you know, independently uh, as, as contractors. So yeah, it's it's... Again, I think I don't know that she does claim that she was the first. I think she just says, you know, it was a it was an innovative idea and everyone was laughing at me at the time. And the other examples that she gives of of similar companies did seem to start later. But it wasn't it was sort of the combination of two things. Right. It was the let's do this different model of offering software um, and offering programmers to develop that software for you instead of just offering the hardware. And then on top of that, let's be completely flexible with our workforce. And to some extent, let's let's obfuscate that from the clients. I don't think that they did focus on that too much in their sales that like, oh, this is, you know, women at home that's the doing it. It's just like we're a professional company that works, you know, not in an office uh, as far as you know, or maybe as, as far as you know, it looks like a decent letterhead that it might be an office and we deliver the software to you. And, you know, we have our fixed cost model that, you know, makes you feel confident that you're not going to get ripped off in the process. That's interesting. Sure. So I, I feel like I agree with your takeaways there and that they certainly made efforts to hide. You know, I think I think she had a story about how like how how would the Concord president feel knowing that their project was being designed by women who were like folding nappies on the side. But she also seemed to really hold to the company's story and the fact that they were differentiated because they hired freelance women programmers. And, you know, as we get into the growth story of the company and as she started to hand over control, one of the things that was done, it seems, was like kind of removing the about us and the highlighting the history of the company, which she was always, she seemed 
quite offended by, right? She was very sad that all of that uh, was removed from their marketing materials. And but the reason being that in, uh, clients were hiring them because of their high quality output and not because they were doing good by hiring a bunch of women. So I, I and as I said, I, I agree with kind of that they did try to hide it, but she did certainly feel that it was very important to the company and how they presented themselves, maybe in those news articles and such. And like, if you think of an about us on the company website, although that didn't quite exist at the time, she felt that that origin story and the fact that they were uh, employing these women was very important and was quite offended when that stopped to be the focus of how the company portrayed itself. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's like at least three phases and maybe there's more and I'm missing one, but there's the very beginning where it's, you know, she's literally just working from her kitchen and she's trying to present herself as professionally as possible. And so, you know, she even mentions like she doesn't put Moss Cottage or whatever the name of their house is because it will seem too, you know, rinky dink. And so instead she like has some other, you know, business address. So it sounds like, you know, whatever it's on Main Street or something like that. And then, you know, hiring the the secretary, you know, just for a couple hours a, a week and, you know, whatever, they'll help each other out with childcare and stuff while that's happening. And then they do start to get a little bit bigger and they do start to get like a decent amount of scale and she has success with it and she starts to be proud and like she sets the, you know, formal mission statement for the company around like, you know, helping women, uh, I think with children originally, and then they make it women with dependents. Um, and then ultimately they actually run into to British discrimination law and have to have to change their mission to say that it's, you know, for people that are, you know, supporting dependents because, you know, obviously the sexism, it was primarily focused on not hiring women, but in, in because of the way they had structured their, their own mission statement, it was clearly explicitly sexist that they were focused on hiring women and they did largely have, you know, female employees at that point. And then I guess to, to your point later on, as they become even bigger, then it starts to be like, all right, now we're selling to you know, the largest corporations in the world and things like that. And we want to start to position ourselves as just like the highest quality software vendor, like in, you know, the world to be able to, you know, grow as rapidly as we possibly can. And in that case, we don't want to continue to like focus on this mission statement about, you know, flexibility and dependency. We want to seem like just like a solid, reliable institutional brand. Yeah, no, I, I agree. like how you put it in the phases. And I would say two other things about those phases. Phase two when they were growing and she was proud of being a mostly female workforce, ha actually gave quite a bit of publicity. So there was, it seemed like there was a lot of positive publicity that was coming out, probably some negative publicity too, but about that. So it, it actually seemed like a marketing tool almost. In phase three, when they kind of tempered that back, I think that was actually the managers that came in after her and she was a little bit against it from the outside, but understood why they were doing it. And I guess actually there's even a phase four, which is that after they got acquired by the French company, then I don't know, it was, I, I forget how many years it was later, they had some, you know, anniversary for the company. And that company was highlighting the fact that they had also been founded on this idea of, you know, flexible working. So it was founded by a man and it wasn't focused explicitly on women, but it was focused on having people work remotely as, you know, freelance programmers effectively and being able to, you know, support, uh, less traditional lifestyles and things like that, that, um, you know, required helping your family and, and having, you know, the flexibility to only work a few months a year or whatever it might be that both of those companies had actually had that background. And so they brought both the original founder of that company and Stephanie Shirley out for this, you know, corporate thing to, to talk about it. And she was sort of proud of that, that it had come full circle again. And now after it had been sort of diminished by her successors at the company, now post-acquisition when she felt like it had gone away in some ways it was coming back and they were again saying like oh we have this long history of uh flexibility and allowing people to to work in this this really innovative way i am curious are you are you left uh thinking that freelance programming can work and is successful and especially thinking that this is something that all many companies all companies are going through with covid right now of how do you manage a remote workforce? And, you know, she pioneered this, uh, as you're just mentioning, the company that then acquired them also pioneered it. But there are there are challenges to it. And I think as being in this remote world for eight months or whatever, I really miss like the company culture, right? And being around and actually learning from people in person. And I'm curious if you had any takeaways from the book of that you can actually use for managing a remote workforce and building that culture, or if you have anything that does worry you about a remote workforce. 
So I worked for a couple of years as a freelance programmer, and I would say that it was a great experience for me, but I was kind of working as a solo. So I was not working as part of a larger team. I think what comes across to me in the book and maybe a little bit between the lines is that each of the freelancers and freelance programmers was working to a very, very clear specification. I think that was probably part of their quality control process as well. And so it might have felt a little bit less creative than what we generally think about as a freelancer having a lot of freedom. But I I think probably, or especially in these early days with the type of programs that were being written, there were very, very clear specifications and there was a very um, definite correct result and incorrect result. And I think for freelance programmers today who are working on more, let's say, um, creative apps, there's less of that clear set of specifications, which makes it a little bit harder to enforce quality. But that doesn't exactly answer your question. But I just think that there's, I think we need to keep in mind the context of the type of programs that people were writing back then. Yeah, that's a great point. The software that's being written by my teams right now. I like to think that I put together good specifications, but you're right. There's a lot more flexibility and creativity that goes into it. And the things that happen that end up taking longer than you expect is not like that uncommon. But the important thing for me is to just hear from my team as soon as that happens. So it's it's just like the constant communication, which, you know, remotely could be difficult to do. But yeah, I mean, we have we have daily Zooms at 945 and, and 10 o'clock for the two different software engineering teams that I lead. And so, you know, each day I'm finding out how much progress the engineers are making and if they run into a problem where, you know, I wasn't clear or there's some technical thing that makes it more difficult than we thought about before. It's just about understanding what is that problem, what are the potential solutions, and then making a decision, okay, we don't need to do this, so you know we can still meet our current deadlines, or we do need to do this, we need to adjust our deadlines, or we need to cut you know some other scope from the software. This is definitely necessary, but there might be some other areas where we could tweak the requirements so we can still meet deadlines, those kinds of things. I think another piece that she was really big on, although it, it was sort of a little later in the company, was employee ownership. And I think that can be very important for these kinds of situations as well. So, so having true ownership of the corporation does, you know, align the employees with the efforts and, you know, productivity and, you know, delivering on time. And, you know, as freelancers, they had a lot of that just like directly in the way that, that things were working in the sense that they did have to meet their specifications in order to get paid. So even if they didn't have equity, they still had that, like, I'm not getting paid unless I do the work in the, the expected timeframe. But then also, the employees did ultimately get, I think she gave away about a quarter of the company to the employees. And so that was a really important thing for her. She had to th- took her many years to do it because of the, the tax implications at the time, which I think some of those laws might have changed in, in Britain since then. But she had to sort of create charitable trusts that were you know representative of the employees and things like that. I think once they went public, it became a lot easier to do a lot of the uh, granting access to, to ownership to the employees. But I've definitely noticed that for myself personally, having significant equity in the companies that I work for does change the way that I think about it. And there is like a sense of, you know, we're all in it together in a way when, you know, companies do pay a lot with equity. My current company does to some extent, but they're not really paying me in equity, but they do have like an employee stock purchase program. And so, uh, and they, they give, you know, additional bonus for like the amount of money that you put in. So, you know, they have ways to at least incentivize you to, to, to buy a stake in it. And I, I do think it changes the way that I work even you know, in small quantities, just knowing that there's like a little bit of skin in the game really makes you, uh, you know, think with an owner's perspective. I thought this part was so interesting. And, and I, to be fair, this was not part of the book. This was not one chapter. This really did seem to be a focus of hers in this phase three of the company, as we were talking about earlier, as it really grew in size and there was real equity there she, yeah, I think she gave away 25% of her ownership at no cost directly to employees, in addition to creating many schemes for them to buy shares from her at a very low cost. Like it was, I think you could look at it with the perspective of, oh, she was trying to make money off of her employees. Like I, I don't think she was. She was really, really focused on making an employee owned company. And I, I was so interested by it, right? Like one, I don't know if y'all saw this any differently, but it it wasn't clear to me why she was so driven by it. I know at the end, and certainly short as you just called out, 
She does talk about how employee-owned businesses have proven to be more successful um, and, you know, the employees have more skin in the game. So she thinks that that's important, but it didn't seem like she saw an example of that and therefore wanted her company to be run that way. And I'd, I'd be curious, maybe I missed something there, but it was like, she just seemed very focused on this idea. The board didn't agree with her at points, right? Like it seemed like she was focused on this when she maybe should have been focused on some other things. And then when they, I forget the timelines of like when they went public versus when they were acquired, but it was like, most of the employees just sold their shares. Like they just cashed in. And that was how I saw it of like, it just seemed to me like she was just giving away money. And I wasn't sure if the employees are actually bought in um, as being owners of a company. I, I've, my very first job uh, was at King Arthur Flower, which is an employee run business. And, uh, you know, I was 15 and didn't really understand what that meant. And like, it was everywhere, like, you know, everywhere in the staff rooms and everything, it's calling out that it's an employee run business. I certainly didn't feel any differently about the fact that I apparently owned part of the company while I worked there. And then my, at my former employer, which was a public company, they similarly had an employee stock purchase program. A large part of my salary was paid in stock and I think I mostly saw it as financial compensation. And it seems, you know, she had an employee stock purchase. No, she had, sorry, a profit sharing scheme at one point, which she said her employees really just saw as compensation. So first of all, I'd be curious from either of you if you understood why she was so focused on this. And secondly, for for me as as a female reading the book, I I was just wondering, would a male entrepreneur have done this? Like she just seemed so focused on this and ultimately gave away tens of millions worth of value that she just gave away to her employees. And I just wonder if the, how the story would have looked different about that specifically had she been a male entrepreneur instead of female. Yeah, I think it was a really interesting aspect of the book. And I, I think she mentioned being inspired by a liberal politician who had kind of worked with her on some of the early business aspects of freelance programmers. And then she also was inspired by some other entrepreneurs that had made employee-owned companies in Spain and in Italy, as well as in John Lewis in the UK. My experience learning about this before in some documentaries and reading about it is that there's people who think this is like a panacea and like you, you create a employee-owned company and suddenly you've Remove the ills of capitalism and found some kind of in between between capitalism and socialism. And I think there is a kernel of truth that it does inspire um, employees to take more ownership and be more engaged and, and happier. And of course, I think there is a good thing about having people share in the profits when profits come about. But my, my also feeling from, from the little bit of um, academic research and, and things I've seen about it before is that the people who are idealistic about it are a little too idealistic about it. That it certainly is a positive, but it won't fundamentally change how people feel about their job and, and, how, um, and how productive people are. It ha- it'll have some effect, some boost, but it doesn't go and take what might have been a really bad job and make it a good job. It, it has some, some limited percentage improvement on on how productive people are and how much they enjoy their job. Yeah, I guess I would say that for me, the last company I worked at was publicly traded and uh, RSUs were a pretty substantial portion of, of total compensation for the year. And so once you receive those shares, you could sell them. There was like limited windows and stuff. And so, you know, some employees really did think of it in like a purely financial way. As soon as they received the shares, they would sell them uh, for cash and then whatever, you know, save it or spend it, do whatever they wanted with it at that point. Um, I tended to, to keep the shares. But while I was there, the stock price went way down at one point and people had received, you know, their annual compensation news where there was like this range of what the stock was assumed to be at. And now the stock was trading like significantly below like the bottom end of that range. And so people did feel kind of like offended or whatever. And it's like, well, that's that's part of like taking compensation at equity is that if the company's not doing great, then now you're you are getting less less compensation as as a result. And, you know, that can create some negative feelings. Now, if those employees held on to those shares, they are now worth, you know, above the, the high end of the range, too. So, you know, that's that can just happen with whatever high volatility, you know, technology companies. But it is just like, a, I think it depends on the person, honestly, how, how are they going to really treat it? You know, a lot of people take advantage of 
the in, employee stock purchase program to, to really just buy it. And then they get, you know, a cash bonus on what it is that they're putting in. And then they just sell it as soon as they can in order to take advantage of that cash bonus. They're really not trying to buy the, um, the company shares. Again, for me personally, like I just do believe in the company. I think it's undervalued right now. So like I am putting money into it, but like if it went up 4X or something, would I continue to, to participate in that way? Probably not. So, you know, it's all like, it's all relative. And I don't think that like it's a panacea by any means, but she does actually cite that, I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure you could find statistics that disprove this now, and maybe the more recent ones would be different, but that an investment of 100 pounds in the FTSE all share index in 92 would have been worth 242 pounds in 2011. The same investment in the employee ownership index would be worth 767 pounds. So that's an index of companies that have at least 10% of the shares owned by the employees. So, I mean, I, I do kind of believe it that I think having significant employee ownership of a company does align incentives better, but I also agree with you, Kopak, that it's it's certainly not a panacea and a lot of people are going to treat it in a, a relatively financially focused way. Yeah. So so I want to make two points in response to that. One thing is that I think there's quite a difference between being offered shares or the ability to purchase shares or stock options and the employees actually having enough shares to be in control of the company. And I, so I, I think we need to be careful about like if someone works at Apple and they get some stock options. That's different from a majority of the company being in the control of the employees, which is kind of what she was aiming for and what a lot of the models that she was inspired by were about. And then the other thing I want to point out is that I think there's a difference, like you said, between the financial gains you might get and how much that makes you productive and happier at your job. I think that that comparison between how the companies that had employee ownership did versus the ones that didn't might have a lot to do with the fact that companies who are willing to even entertain this idea tend to be more innovative and more uh, forward-thinking companies than companies that wouldn't entertain the idea. Yeah, that's a great point. I don't think she ever succeeded, though. So she gave about 24% to the employees, I think. And maybe she sold additional shares to where they, they but I don't think they ever got over over 50%. But you're right. A lot of the the other examples she gave really are the, what's it called, like the Mondragon Corporation in, in Spain and things like that, where they really are truly, truly owned by the employees. I think she did actually. I guess the the numbers that I had written down was because she also had the voting rights scheme where employee votes on their shares counted 2x of non-employees. So in in terms of voting rights, I think they got it above 50%, even though the employee shares, I had it uh, written down as 43%. So I think she gave away 25%, but then made the remaining available for employees to purchase. Yeah, I have the the quote here. From the end of 1991, F International was controlled on major issues by the combined voting power of the staff shareholders and the shareholders trust, who between them had a 43% interest and because of double voting, 62% of the voting rights, while a substantial majority of those who worked for the company had a direct financial stake in its future. This is page 218. Okay, so they didn't have a majority share, but they had majority voting rights. That's That's cool. All right. Yeah. And then they did just sell out too. <laughs> so it's kind of a <laughs> yeah. yeah, most a lot of a lot of them sold out for the financial gain when they were able to. And I I think I would st- I would still push on the point of why for her personally. So the I think the point the points made that the employee owned businesses have been more successful financially, but for her to give away such significant portion of her ownership uh, directly to the employees. Certainly, the advantages of being an employee-owned company didn't come back uh, in droves for her financially. Uh, and, and I'm just curious what you felt as the reasons that for her personally to do that. I think she was inspired by idealism, and I think she, I think she's clearly from the rest of the book. What you know, as we read about her personal struggles and her her charitable work, she's just a really great person. I think that I don't know that there was any motivation for her beyond idealism and wanting to do what in her mind was the right thing. Certainly, I agree with you that it hurt her financially quite substantially, actually. And so this was really a, a great act of of kindness because she she actually probably lost hundreds of millions of pounds as a result of doing it. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that that she did, even at the the final sale for 470 million. You know, the the quarter that she'd given away would have been, you know, 100 million pounds there alone. Um, and it, yeah, it was worth 2.7 billion or something, I think, at one point. So um, 
And she gave away a lot of the shares at that point too to other charitable organizations and whatnot. But I do have the quote here. So she says, of all the things I have given, it is arguable that the shares in my company that I gave away had the greatest financial value. In fact, I've rarely thought of this transfer of ownership as a gift and I, it would be wrong if I did. The staff had a right to share in the company. Without them, the company would not have been so prosperous. And I'm certain that Zansa would never have reached anything like the financial heights it eventually did if it hadn't been powered by the fuel of staff ownership. But while I never doubted that aspect of the transfer, I did sometimes struggle with a more abstract issue, the fact that transferring ownership also means ultimately transferring control. That was the real challenge, surrendering power. Anyone can adjust to having a little bit less money. Ceding control of an enterprise that really matters to you is, by contrast, painfully counterintuitive. So I think that she, I mean, it based, this basically is her like final like letting go <laughs> sort of like statement, right? It's just by giving away the shares of the company, she really did cede the control. She really did give it back to the people. And it allowed her to kind of move on with her life in certain ways, too. All right. So why don't we move on to how the company changed as she became less in charge of it on a day-to-day basis? So I think for a while, she moved into more of a strategic role and handed over what we would think about as a CEO role to, to somebody else. How did that evolve the company? How did her role change? And how does that play into kind of the title of the book, Let It Go? So I don't actually remember the names of, of the various women who succeeded her, but I think the way she describes it is basically that it took three different chances before she finally did manage to find someone who really could succeed her. So first, there was a woman who took over and she you know, did, did well with the company. It continued to grow, but ultimately she wanted to leave. And I believe she founded just like a competing company. So, you know, she, she led it for a little while, but she didn't have a lot of, of ownership. She really would just have the type sort of title of managing director and, and was kept in charge, but, um, you know, wanted to, to do her own thing. Uh, she then hired another person from within the company who I think the way she put it was basically that she could have run the company earlier, but by that stage, she really wasn't ready for you know this just to really scale the company to the the multinational corporation that it could become. And so, the second woman that she brought in, while she was would have been fine earlier, and you know probably was closer to to her capabilities, didn't have the skill to really take it to the next level. And so then finally, she brought in a woman from again an, a, another competitor who actually she had run a independent software consulting, you know, firm. It wasn't, you know, focused on women and things like that, but, but had like real industry expertise. And under that woman's leadership, I think she led the company for like 17 years. It was really where the company was able to, to, to really take off and grow and become, you know, the incredibly successful, you know, multi-billion pound, pound place that it, that it would become. And so she kind of talks about the fact that you need sort of different leaders for different points in time. Uh, I, I think I have one quote here where she goes, uh, from from my point of view, there were lessons to be learned. Most importantly, I had to think more specifically about what kind of leadership and management F International now needed. A decade earlier, Allison might have been an ideal managing director, but the company was now too big for that kind of management. Like a child turning imperceptibly into an adult, F International had become a proper grown-up company with blue chip clients and a multi-million pound turnover. It needed to be run as such. And so ultimately she was able to let go and, you know, find someone who who really could lead it into that into that next phase. Yeah. And I think the theme here that I saw is she was trying to work with these new managers and new directors of the company was the personal challenges that she had with each of them, right? So obviously there was the one who, uh, you know, I think she uses the word betrayed, who she felt betrayed. Um, she kind of came into work one day and her co-director had left the company to go start a competitor. And then she was pretty honest as well about how the second director that they tried to use to uh, replace her, that they struggled with three years. And that, you know, I felt like she was, she was pretty honest there uh, talking about how she was like, you know what, like when we finally just let her go, I think that we were both happier about it. And she would probably say the same about me. And like, I don't really want to ask her actually what she would say about me because we just both struggled there. And then with the third uh, who ultimately uh, took the company on to be incredibly successful, She's very honest about like seeing everybody, seeing the outside world look at the success and kind of saying it's all due to this woman and not due to Stephanie. And she's like, well, like I handed her a successful company and she helped it grow. Like where, where's my success? Where's people talking about me? Those are just some parts that I found to be like very raw and honest in the book, which is just another theme that I, I don't think we've touched on yet of just how honest and raw and transparent the book is, but where she shared how she really felt as she had to let go of the ownership of the company. That's a great point. Yeah. 
she was very unvarnished and that she really revealed emotions that I think many people would be unwilling to. And I, I was really impressed by her like willingness to be vulnerable and, you know, transparent about some you know really difficult things in her life. You know, she talked about, you know, considering suicide when she was, you know, in the the depths of like the greatest difficulties with Giles and even talking about it with her husband and like him having like practical reasons for not wanting to do it, but like seriously considering it, it was like just really an incredible book. And I I, I yeah was was very impressed by her uh, willingness to to disclose things that you know didn't make her come off in like the best light. She she really was willing to just be honest about the the struggles that she went through. I think that's a great segue into talking more about her personal life, which she is, as we've discussed, very open about throughout the book. And it certainly did affect her career. So, what were some of the personal struggles that she had? How did she deal with them? And at one point, she even had a a mental breakdown. Uh, how, how did that affect her career and the evolution of her role at the company? So I think the, the greatest personal struggle that she had uh, quite apparently is that her first son, Giles, was diagnosed with autism, I think when he was about two and a half, and then went on also to have epilepsy and seizures. And this is an autism where not on the spectrum as we might think of it, where he has uh, some social challenges, but he was entirely nonverbal. He was violent. And, you know, she talks about how he grew into being a, a man and an adult that is quite overpowering and would have tantrums where thing, uh, furniture would be flipped in the house and uh, it was dangerous to live with him. And that defined her life, really. And, you know, I said, I say oldest child, also only child. I think for her, she she had wanted a large family. She had wanted to have many children. And when this started, when Giles was diagnosed with this, when he was two and a half, uh, they just, at that point, really could not uh, look to having any more children. So Giles became uh, very significant in her life and it was just a struggle every day on how to treat him. And I think that in the book, she does, the book is written in such a great way where chapters actually flip back and forth of what was happening at the company and then what was happening with Giles as this just constant reminder that through all of the successes of the company, she was not removed from the challenges of Giles and just the challenges of, you know, is she able to see him? How will he react when she goes to visit him at the hospital on the weekends? And then when he's uh, kind of graduates from the care of the hospital that he's living in uh, and living at home, just like how tumultuous it was to have an adult at home who is violent and nonverbal. And how is she able to run a company at the same time as treating him? And then ultimately, you know, he goes to a new hospital and they learn that his care there is, you know, insufficient, I guess. But it's like they learn that he's been drinking from a toilet was really what worried her. And so she had to invest in uh, taking him out of the hospital and having round the clock nurses that could treat him in his own house. And that was one of the things I think with the company where she looked at it and suddenly saw the financial value of the company and realized that her shares had value that would allow her to take care of Giles and also looked at it and said, okay, the company now has to be successful because I need to make money in order to take care of my son. And I, I thought that was interesting. Like she really had not talked about making money up until that point in the book when suddenly it just became incredibly challenging. Yeah, the whole sections going into everything that happened with Giles were incredibly moving and just depressing and, you know, so hard to deal with. And the, you know, struggles that she had both working, you know, with the state and against the state and the, you know, funding that she was trying to get to, to, to get help. And I guess that was one of the really interesting things about this too, was that, you know, the fact that she'd written the book and stuff, you kind of knew that she's going to become this like incredible success, but she really was struggling financially to do you know, everything she needed to for her son, even though she had like a pretty successful business, she was spending, you know, a hundred thousand pounds a year or something on, on his care. And at that time that was, you know, as much profit as the company was making. So she really was sinking everything she, she was making into just supporting her son. And so she was even, you know, 
actively working to get to get the state to help out. And they ended up having, you know, a number of other autistic people move into the same house with Giles so that it then could become like a formal program with, you know, philanthropic support from her as well as, you know, state funds going into it as well. And it really was just like a, a, a fascinating story. And it, it ultimately inspired her as she did become fantastically wealthy to invest a lot into the the autism space. And so she ultimately built a school, I believe it's called the, the Priors Academy or I don't know, does, that, does someone know the name of the school? Yeah, Prior. And the school really focused on very high teacher to student ratio and the ability to have, you know, I think it was like 55 acres, so a lot of a lot of open space for for the children and ultimately about training them to be self-sufficient so that they actually could, you know, leave the school and and actually lead, you know, lives, ideally get some some kind of real job that they would be paid on leaving so that they could actually, you know, lead an independent, you know, life for themselves, which she felt that, you know, Giles had never really gotten there, but it had been one of the other parts of her letting go was letting go of, you know, control over Giles' life having him be in like a, a setting where he could, you know, had caretakers, but that they, he wasn't locked up. He was able to leave the house and even go to stores and things like that and started to become never like truly independent, but much more independent than he had been in the the many years that he spent in, you know, virtual lockdown and hospitals. And so, you know, the, just the facts of, of what things were like for, you know, autistic children at that time were, were certainly very, you know, dark and, and hard to hear. But I think, it was really impressive to see how much of a difference she was able to make by focusing in on on, on one real area. And so I think I guess she, she also spent a lot of her time on uh, on technical sort of societies and things like that. But it seemed like that was basically how she decided to spend her time. She wasn't going to just like give money to whoever asked her for money. She was going to spend a lot on a few causes that she was really passionate about and places where, again, she wasn't just going to write a check, but she was also going to invest and work on the, the projects herself. And so I, I really enjoyed it. And I thought it was also interesting. She went into a lot of depth about how behind the times uh, British wealthy people are compared to Americans. And so the fact that I think it was something like 13% of American, I, I forget what the, the standard was, you know, the, the highest, the most wealthy people in America, 13% of their income was going to charity versus in Britain, it was like 2%. And so that she was trying to really lead a path for British people to not just feel like, oh, it was crass to talk about money and to instead be able to really invest in philanthropy in the same way that they would invest in their, you know, yachts and cars and other clear indications of, of wealth. But to be able to really like show off how proud you were of the the causes that you'd given to. And what she really talks about is that there's nothing else that you can spend that's going to give you as much back as these kind of philanthropic efforts that, that the joy she got out of that spending was much more than she would have gotten from, you know, buying a yacht or something like that. And she was successful with it, right? So she started she started several foundations. I, I don't know if I tracked the names of all of them, right? So for autism, she had the prior court and then and then she also had Autistica, which was focused on autism research. And then finally she had the Shirley Foundation, which she gave kind of the rest of her wealth to. And the Shirley Foundation actually shut down in 2018 because they've given away all of their funding for it. So I think she's been very successful in lifetime philanthropy rather than relying on a trust after she dies or something. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you read a later edition of the book than, than we did. So maybe it it gave those details or maybe maybe you did some research afterwards. But in the edition that I read, at least, it, it yeah, she said that it was set up to try to give it away within her life and that it had to give it away within five years of her death. So that was the way that the foundation was set up. But that's that's cool that they they succeeded. They managed to give it away in her lifetime. Yep, that's the 2019 update of the book that was in there at the end. Yeah, it was really shocking to read about how people with these kind of problems were treated in the 1960s and 1970s in the UK, and I'm sure in many other places, probably including the US as well. And so that alone, I think, if you're interested in that, is a reason to read this book. But thinking about all of her philanthropy, what were the major takeaways that she learned over the decades of philanthropy that she did? Like, what were the most important things? I know you mentioned concentrating on just a couple of causes. What else? I think she also recognized what she was able to bring to companies. Um, and that was that she was a very successful in her own right software developer and that she understood systems. 
So she also focused on how in the companies and organizations that she was working with, with her philanthropy, could she bring that expertise? Um, and that, w- that was something that I think we see that now. And right as a management consultant, that's something that we certainly look to do as a company is how can we do pro bono consulting projects and bring that expertise? But again, I think seemed to be a bit of ahead of the time for her looking at actually offering her expertise for free to these organizations that she was working with to help them improve their systems and improve their processes. Yeah, she also talks about how, I'll just read a quote. She says, I say philanthropic rather than charitable because increasingly I am conscious of a difference. Charity repairs the immediate damage of social ills. Philanthropy tries in a more preventative way to make society a better place to live in. For those who can afford to give large sums, philanthropy is a more productive investment. And so she herself was the beneficiary of a lot of charity. She did get, you know, direct transfers from the state, I think, as well as from the Quaker organizations that had sort of sponsored her getting uh, moved into into England. But from her perspective, it's it's better to focus on philanthropy where you're where you're really trying to solve the the structural issues rather than just like direct giveaways. And so the you know focus on on education, the focus on cures and, and research into the fundamentals of autism rather than just cash giveaways. Not to mention the charity uh, that started her life, where this couple in the UK who were childless took her in as a refugee in a very kind of awkward situation where her parents were not actually gone. They actually survived and ended up making it to England. But she still had this two-family situation where she had these this new couple who were very good to her and she had a, a great experience with. I wonder if that kind of inspired her her lifetime of giving and her interest in philanthropy later on. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, the her refugee status was definitely very important to her, and she she talked about the fact that she is always aware of like how important that that kinder transport was to her life. That she just nothing about her life would be the same had she not been the beneficiary of that of that generosity. And so it was always important to her to to give back in a you know not necessarily the exact same way, but to to make sure that that her life was one of of value and it was it was worth it. The one argument that I would make against all of this is that. I don't know how her life, and especially on the philanthropic side, would have been different had Giles not had autism, right? So I think she was thrown into a lot of this, uh, and she needed to create in uh, a school for autistic children, and then she obviously cared deeply about autism research, and that's the focus of most of her philanthropic work. But up until needing to do those types of things, it didn't seem to me like it was she was looking to give back or that uh, the her refugee status made her inspired her to be giving back. So it seems like something that she fell into in some ways, um, and then was a leader in, which I would also honestly say about her uh, being an entrepreneur in the first place of if she hadn't had to leave her job, I don't know if she would have been an entrepreneur, right? It was like she was forced into that. And she's clearly a leader and a incredibly hardworking, as she mentions throughout the book, individual, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to me to be something that she wanted to do either of those things at the start. I think she wanted a life where it would be a life worth living, as she says, but also she probably would have been happy uh, being able to keep her original programming job had she not kind of been forced out due to sexism. That's a really, really interesting point, Eli. I think you're right that she was incredibly impacted by her circumstances. But I feel like she did have the focus on like providing, you know, women an opportunity to to work from home and stuff even before, you know, anything related to jobs. But to your point, was that just because of the sexism that she faced? Like probably, yes. Like she was annoyed at the or offended and, you know, angry at the things that had happened to her. And so she wanted to make a place where people wouldn't be, you know, subject to that. So yeah, no, that that's really interesting. I feel like the and and yeah, absolutely. The the fact that autism was was where her philanthropy focused was clearly impacted a lot by Giles. I do wonder, to your point, what yeah, would it would it have been some other area? Would it would it have been more like women who code and things like that? Would, would she have continued to just focus within the technology? Because she did still have a lot of like efforts to be on you know boards and things like that for for technological issues. So maybe maybe it would have just stayed within that area if she hadn't had the the family experience that that made autism so important to her. I think maybe that her refugee status 
provided her the motivation to be a charitable person, to get involved in philanthropy, to do all the great things she did in her life, I don't think it, of course, gave her the specifics. So it wasn't that she knew when she was uh, thinking about that she wanted to make her life life worth living, that it would necessarily be in the area of autism. But I think she always had that predilection to, to go towards doing something uh, for other people. That, that's how I would interpret the, the book. Okay, so we've made it through. The title of the book is Let It Go. I don't think we've really hit on it enough. Why is the book called Let It Go? I think she, in writing the memoir, started to see themes throughout her life where she really did have to, quote unquote, let it go. So that's as we've talked about with her company and how she had to go from being the founder of the company to really stepping back and not even having a role, just being a shareholder as she watched somebody else grow the company. Even while she was still working there, she had the challenges when she had to spend more time caring for Giles. And so she had to step back from her main role at the company and uh, rely on some others. And that's just some early lessons that she learned. And then short, I loved what you said earlier about realizing with Giles that she also was not uh, the best person to care for him. So she, as a mother, had to let go of her care of Giles. And then finally, she let go of her money. Uh, So in her life, she's let go of the majority of her wealth and given it away both to the employees at her company through, as we talked uh, ad nauseum about, about employee ownership and then through her charitable trust. So I think it's, you know, she seems to have acknowledged that it was a theme throughout her life, but not necessarily something that drove her life. I think it seems more something that she realized in retrospect uh, tied her life story together. Yeah, I I have the quote. So it never occurred to me when I set out to write this book that letting go might be the connecting theme of my life. Yet the more I think about it, the more obvious it seems. So many of my landmark breakthroughs seem to have involved some form of counterinstinctive loosening of my grip on something. In early adulthood, with the help of psychoanalysis, I was eventually able to let go of the traumas of my early childhood and immediately began to thrive as a result. When I left FI Group, it was letting go of my accumulated resentment that allowed me to discover a rewarding new phase of my life when I could so easily have wasted my retirement in backward-looking bitterness. Perhaps most significantly of all, learning to let go of my money has been absolutely central to what I now see as the most rewarding stage of my life. So I think Eli hit most of those and maybe even a couple couple of others as well. But it really is just the moving on with things, being able to, you know, release control over things, being able to move on, being able to find the next thing and being able to just get over the the things that have happened in the past, which for her, it would be very understandable to, to not be able to get over, you know, almost almost any of these experiences, let alone the, the cumulative you know force of all of them. And she was willing to let go of management roles in many cases, both, of course, as we as Eli mentioned at her company, but also in her charities. She actually would start the charity, and this happened in a few different charities she mentions in the book, and get it up to speed over the course of a few years, and then hand it over to a professional management team that was more invested in just it while she could go on to her next charitable contribution. So I, I think that it was an incredible theme throughout her entire life, both personally, professionally, and as a philanthropist. Okay. So thinking about the book as a whole, do we recommend it? Yeah, I would I would highly recommend this to anyone interested in early technology, anyone interested in philanthropy, anyone interested in just like incredibly impressive women. This was this was really a, a great book that I would highly recommend. Yeah, I agree. I, I actually I, I know that both of you love this. So uh Copac to steal your thunder. I know that you're going to say, I assume that you're going to say that you recommend it. Um I think I I was a little more torn just because The book was both inspiring by hearing and learning about her life story, and then also was a bit of a history lesson for me. But I I don't know um, if I would, who exactly I would recommend the book to, because it wasn't strong on the side of management lessons as some of the books that we read are that I feel like I can apply directly to my job and would help me be a better manager in my roles. And it wasn't it wasn't strong i think on just on the philanthropic side so i think i would just be a little torn there and i think you know uh short you sent out a great 
TED Talk. And that might be the type of thing that I would recommend is learning more about the life of Stephanie Shirley and listening to that TED Talk by her perhaps, um, but maybe not uh, through reading the whole book. So maybe I'll surprise you a little bit and I'll recommend it to a few very specific audiences. So I think it's a great book if you're interested in learning about sexism in the early technology industry. I think it's a great book if you're interested in learning about the evolution of autism care. I think it's a great book if you're interested in the the early part about just learning what it was like to be a refugee on kinder transport. And when you add all those different elements together, as well as her, her philanthropic work, I think it's just a great life story if you're just looking for a great life story. Was it a great business book, which is the theme of our podcast? Probably not. Uh, it's probably not one of the best business books we've read, but as just as a book and as something that I think should get uh, wider acknowledgement, certainly in the US, it doesn't seem to be a very well-known book. I think it deserves it. And I think it's just a great life story. And if you are particularly interested in any of those special interest areas, then it's really a great book. Yeah, I think that's fair that I would say it's one of the best narratives that we've read. But yeah, in terms of the business lessons, it had some good ones, but I think we we covered them largely in in other areas where we've we've read. I'd say the the one real difference just being how, you know, remote work really got started was was interesting to hear about in, in this particular time. But it wasn't like she had like a lot of like tips and tricks for how to do reviews when you're not in person and things like that, that, you know, she probably would know, but just probably was less interesting to people when she when she was writing this book. Okay. And Eli, I'm wondering, you listened to the audiobook version. Were there anything that you took away from the audiobook version that you think might have been different from if people had read the book in print? I think the the only difference I would say is that the audiobook was uh, read by an English woman. So I had the lovely opportunity to listen to a British accent as we were reading through the whole book. And uh, sure, I know you know, you mentioned earlier that they moved into like Moss Cottage and places like that. Just the uh, it is a lovely British book. Uh, so to listen to it in the accent by uh, Rachel Rachel Atkins was the narrator was something that I think uh, helped put me uh, in the place uh, and the setting of the book as I was listening. That's interesting. I read the enhanced edition on the Apple bookstore from like, I believe it's the 2012 edition. And it, it came with a lot of like little video snippets of Stephanie Shirley throughout it. So, so that one was, was interesting too, to, to actually hear her voice talking about some of these experiences as I was going through it. But yeah, we should definitely include the, uh, the Ted talk in the show notes as well. All right, so next month, we're going to be reading Tape Sucks, Inside Data Domain, a Silicon Valley Growth Story by Frank Slootman. David, I know that this was your pick, so do you want to tell us a little bit more about what we'll be reading? Yeah, so Frank Slootman uh, has been in the news quite a lot recently with the IPO of Snowflake, a company that he is the CEO of. But prior to that, he was also CEO of, I'm forgetting the name of the company, I believe it's Data Domain which was really an early uh, cloud computing company. And so, so they were basically allowing people to, to back up their software without needing to use tape in order to do so. So hence the, the, the tape sucks concept. And it's really just his business lessons from, from taking over this company, um, taking it public. And I, I really have enjoyed it so far. I've read about half of it. And it's, it's quite short and really densely good. So I, I would really... Uh, Hope that the the two of you will enjoy it as well, and we'll have a great discussion next month. Before we go, is there anything that either of you want to plug, and how can our listeners get in touch with you? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter, although it's not the most interesting Twitter feed, but emitch46. And I think that when this comes out, this is still going to be relevant, but vote. Go and vote uh, in person, by mail, however it is, whoever you're voting for. I think it's uh, an important time in the U.S. right now to go and vote. And you can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. And I'm at Dave Kopeck. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. And I'll plug my review of the book, which I'll put into the show notes. All right. Well, it's been great having everybody with us this month. And we want to remind you to leave us a review on your podcast player of choice, whether that's Overcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. It really helps get the show noticed. And we look forward to seeing you again next month.